Just move this truck out of the way. Words you don't expect to hear in a sermon. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, James. <laughs> Father, it's your voice that we want to hear clearly, not the voice of a human. It's you that has the words of eternal life. Not me, not any one of us, you, Jesus. Speak to us, Lord. Amen. Right. If you have a a physical or electronic Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6. We sometimes say here, don't we, come prepared, come to church ready. Come in a state where you're able to meet with God. Don't let anything come between you and his voice. And to a great extent, that preparation takes place in our hearts. Your life is full, life is distracting. Lots of things compete for space in our brains. And if we're honest, when we arrive at church, we're not always in the most pious frame of mind. There was a fight over the breakfast table. Little Johnny wanted the last slice of toast. Little Sally licked the last slice of toast and pulled... (laughs) Pulled a mean face. Uh, Much whining followed. I can tell by your laughter this is a familiar story. Um, Mum and Dad exchanged secret glances, as they have many times before, which is a silent code. They both knew meant, shall we make a run for it? No jury would convict us. And in that fractious state, the family makes its way to morning worship. And... Well, one level, being prepared means quieting your heart, forgiving your children, no matter how much they vex you, repenting of the sweet fantasy of abandoning them on a faraway island, or forgiving your parents and repenting of the fantasy that they will disappear off to a faraway island. (laughs) Being prepared means focusing your attention on God, expecting to hear from him ready for what he has to say. And this is all good. Being prepared has another very practical face. Just as a family, we all prepare for church by bringing nappies and wipes for the baby, eye masks and a travel pillow to get you through my sermon, and paracetamol for a a thousand different reasons. Being prepared also means bringing what you need. We all know at least at a theoretical level that church isn't just about what we get out of it. It isn't mainly what we get about, about what we get out of it. It's also about what we give, about the sacrifices that we bring. And if I don't have my Bible with me, how am I going to share that scripture that the Holy Spirit prompts me to read? If I don't have my Bible, how am I going to see the overall structure of the passage we're studying? If I don't bring a notebook... How can I hope to remember the lessons God teaches me? I can tell you with absolute confidence, when you go home, you'll remember almost nothing of what I've said, except maybe this ranty bit. So in preparing for church, I warmly recommend that you pack a notepad, a pen, and your favorite Bible. You can also bring with you all you need in the form of a smartphone or tablet, armed with Bible and note-taking apps, you're all set. There is one risk, though, that the temptation becomes too strong to play a game or to go on Facebook, but I know, dear friends, you are all far too disciplined for that. (laughs) 
So if you came prepared in this way, no judgment by the way, none, none at all, Bibles and notebooks at the ready, into Acts 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Very much like my face as you see me now. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this passage. Um, Acts is full of action and inspiration. And the immediate context of this chapter is the phenomenal growth seen in the early Christian church. Um, verse 1 says, in a very understated manner, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. And some estimates suggest that the Christian church at this point counted something like 20,000 people among its members and it was heading in that direction roughly. And that the message of the gospel was spreading like wildfire. And this isn't too difficult to believe. We've seen in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 people accepted Christ in one day after Peter's powerful Pentecost preach. Very satisfying to say that, Peter's powerful Pentecost preach. You can tell I enjoyed writing that bit. The Holy Spirit is continuing to move and Jerusalem is being rocked to its core. People are being saved. With salvation comes responsibility. Did you know that? Not just the responsibility to tell others the good news, but also responsibility to act in accordance with our faith. Uh, no one can be saved through good deeds, let's be clear. Being good isn't the way to heaven. But still, if there are no good deeds in our lives, are we really saved? What happens in the mind and the heart of someone who's transformed by a good God? What can we expect to see? Now, it's reasonable to think that our compassion will increase, will become more generous, will become increasingly concerned about justice, 
and righteousness, and at times our hearts will break over the poverty and chaos we see around us. The gospel is very concerned about poverty. For example, Jesus met a rich young man, and this man asked him what was necessary to receive eternal life. And we see Christ's response in Matthew 19, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Sell your belongings, give to the poor, follow Christ. And you need to read that story in context to understand it well. That's a sermon in itself. Jesus is not saying that you can be saved by random acts of kindness. But Jesus was saying that poverty needs to be addressed. How can wealthy Christians look on poverty and do nothing? We hear that word wealthy and we have a tendency to assume it means someone else. Not me, I'm not wealthy. The average income around the world is £5,000 annually. In some countries, the average income is more like £200 a year. As we see the rise of homelessness in our nation, which is still one of the richest nations in the world, we have to ask ourselves, what should be our reaction as Christians? In the very early days of the Christian church, they were already addressing this issue of poverty. So widows were particularly vulnerable in the first century. They had no protector, no provider, and the social structures made it impossible, almost, for them to provide for themselves. So the church set up something called the daily distribution. And this clearly was such a well-known institution that Luke takes it as read that we know what he's talking about. And the church was making sure that every day, widows and others had what they needed to survive. And I bet they had in mind what Jesus said when he taught them to pray. And he said, give us this day our daily bread. Just stop for a minute and imagine what it would be like if you had no food in the house, no money in the bank, and no way to borrow money. Oh, and no garden or allotment to grow food in case you're thinking, aha, I spy a loophole. How many days would you last with no way to feed yourself? Jesus knew that we are fragile. We need to keep our bodies warm and fed every day or we break very quickly. Most of us have prayed the Lord's Prayer. I know I've prayed it hundreds of times. And when we arrive at that line, give us this day our daily bread, does it occur to us that we could be the answer to someone else's prayer? That we will be in a position to give someone else their daily bread? The church was God's answer to many prayers and still is. Yes, God could miraculously make bread appear on every table. And he made manna appear in the desert for the Israelites after all. So often though, he chooses to work through people. He knows there's a blessing and a fundamental lesson to be learned for giver and receiver when we share what we have, when we're generous with what he's given us. So the church in Jerusalem was living its beliefs, as we all must, 
Not out of guilt, not trying to earn favour with God, but from an acute awareness that everything that we have, God gave us. And he's interested and concerned as a loving father to see what we do with the things he entrusts to us. Romans 12, 11 to 13 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Romans 12, 11 to 13. The disciples are set out to do this, but something had gone wrong. The Hellenists, that's the Greek-speaking Christians, they were upset that the Greek widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. They raised their concerns with the disciples, the church leaders. It's hard to receive criticism, isn't it? Especially when you're doing your best. What more do you want from me? Thankfully, the disciples were humble and they knew that the challenge was well-founded. The truth was that they were overstretched and some important matters were falling through the cracks. Acts 6, 2-4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Before we consider what that passage is, let's quickly cover what it's not. It's not this. It's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. The disciples are absolutely not saying that preaching is some lofty activity far above the menial task of feeding people. And it's clear from what they go on to say that they consider both activities to be of great importance. We need to see all the words in context. They say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Huh. So to serve food, you need a good reputation, you need to be spirit-filled, and you need to be wise. Yes, correct. These men who were leading the church, they knew what they'd been called to. They'd received explicit instructions from Jesus himself to preach the good news to make disciples. They knew they couldn't neglect that, and they knew that they needed the power of the Holy Spirit in order to have any impact at all. And they knew that it was also true that serving the needy was of fundamental, vital importance to be taken as seriously as the mission of preaching the gospel. As seriously. This isn't a job for an unbelieving scoundrel. This part of the gospel also needed to be handled well. Did you know that hospitality can be a calling? Something for which God uniquely equips you? Serving the widows was an expression of the gospel just as much as spreading the word of Christ. There's a famous quote, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. People attribute that quote to St. Francis of Assisi. There's no particular evidence that he ever said it, by the way. But for me, the quote makes one 
Good point. The gospel is an active thing. Through the gospel, people learn. The sick can be healed and the poor can be fed. Meeting the needs of others is an expression of the gospel. And like any other spiritual activity, in fact, like any other part of life, we need to do it asking for God's wisdom with his grace, drawing on the power he gives us through his spirit. In this way, we'll see that the gospel of Christ isn't just words. So these disciples humbly accepting they couldn't do everything themselves, that in fact they'd slipped up trying to do everything, they said, find some godly spiritual men who can take on this responsibility. Acts 6, 5-7. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The congregation has the responsibility to select these men, note. The disciples didn't do it. They gave the church some guidelines and left the selection up to them. The church members put forward seven men for this duty. You may know that seven is a particularly special number in the Bible representing perfection. Also, one of the commentaries I read in preparation for this sermon said that Jewish communities would often elect a board consisting of seven people to oversee various duties. So this appointment includes oversight, responsibility, and leadership. The seven men listed here all have Greek names, which is interesting. They are invested in the problem. It's their widows, their relatives, the women whose plight stirred them up in the first place. The Hellenists have gone to the disciples to complain, and essentially the disciples have given them permission to resolve the issue themselves. And this is often true of life. We see injustice or the plight of needy people and we say, someone should do something about this. And God says, you're absolutely right. Carry on. In that list of names, you might notice a couple of points. At the start of the list, we have Stephen. He's described as being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And this is the same Stephen who's so zealous for the gospel, he's soon going to become a martyr for the faith. And at the end of the list, we have Nicolaus. He's described as being a proselyte. The word proselyte means a convert. So Nicolaus probably wasn't born a Jew. He's likely a Gentile who's recently converted to Judaism and he's now following Christ. The fact that he's particularly mentioned as being a convert suggests that the six other men were Jewish by birth, albeit Greek-speaking. Stay with me. The Jewish faith was traditionally one of segregation. So throughout the Old Testament, we see that foreigners, though they lived with Jews, they were always seen as foreigners. The very existence of the word for non-Jews, i.e. Gentiles, tells us how important it had been to identify whether or not someone was one of us. Well, the gospel of Christ changes all that. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, 27 to 29, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The fact that Nicolaus wasn't a Jew, that was irrelevant when it came to his suitability. The gospel was for everyone. And Gentiles were no longer second-class citizens when it came to the kingdom of God. Thank you, God. And it's important that we understand this. Why? Let me read it again. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no outsiders anymore. These characteristics, says Paul, have no bearing on your standing with God. When we put on Christ, we become equal before God. We become legitimate. We become his children. We're qualified to receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life when Christ returns. We need to emphasize this point because we are so prone to writing ourselves off. We find reasons or excuses why we can't do God's work. And if we don't write ourselves off, the devil will have a go. But we aren't written off. Not by God. Not ever. Not ever. That sin you think God can't forgive? Already forgiven. Jesus chose two wretched traitors. Matthew the tax collector and Judas the betrayer to follow him. Their sin, past and future, didn't stop Jesus from choosing them. If you've repented and turned to Christ, you're saved. That's it. Done. Take your eyes off yourself and look to him. God accepts you. God wants to use you. Feel like you don't like the way you look? In Isaiah 53, 2, prophesying about Christ, Isaiah writes, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The Son of God, the Son of God, could have picked any face or body he wanted. He chose a body without beauty. God loves you right now the way you are. Take your eyes off yourself and put them on him. He accepts you. He wants to use you. Think you're not clever enough to be used by God. Think again. When Jesus chose the disciples, he chose a real mix of people. Some of them were fishermen. Not lawyers, not doctors, not engineers, not university professors. Fishermen. Take your eyes off yourself and look to Christ. He accepts you. He wants to use you. Are you too shy to be used by God? This one applies to me. Sometimes after church. Confession time. Sometimes after church, when it's crowded and we're all talking, I just feel like running out of here. Don't get me wrong. I love people, truly. Just one at a time. 
And yet here we have an irony. I'm introverted. I'm quite shy by nature. And what does God call me to do? Stand in front of a crowd of people and talk to them. So do you think you're too shy for God to use you? Think again. Take your eyes off yourself and look at him. God chose you. He accepts you. He wants to use you. You know, there isn't a single characteristic that disqualifies us from the kingdom of God, from service to him. It doesn't matter what family you are from, how rich or poor you are, how tall or short, how young or old, what nationality, what sins you've committed, whether you've been in church all your life or this is your first time and you kind of hate it. You can come to Christ. He can use you. He will use you. Nicolaus, the proselyte, the convert, the newcomer, the outsider, the foreigner, he was selected to be one of the seven. The disciples laid hands on the men. We don't have time to go into this. Let's say that in this way, the disciples gave authority to the team. They endorsed the decision of the congregation. They agreed. If you read Numbers chapter 27, you'll see Moses doing this to Joshua when choosing him as a successor. These seven men became leaders in their community. They were leading and serving, and the Greek widows were being looked after. That's a good witness, isn't it? We could spend a lot of time telling people how they ought to behave, pointing out what's wrong with their lifestyles, or we could serve the poor. Which approach says the most about the love and the character of Christ? And we see the ongoing result. The word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God was blessing what they were doing. And people were coming to know Christ in their droves despite the persecution. It was horrible in those days. You know, these priests, it must have been hard for them. They were dropping centuries of tradition, of baggage that had been wrapped around the precious truth in the Old Testament. It was a brave move and probably one that saw many priests losing their livelihoods, if not their lives, ostracized and thrown out of the synagogue. Would you risk your job, your life, to follow Christ? Acts 6, 8 to 10. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is how we know that Stephen was a leader in his community as well as Paul. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's bold and he's taking chances. And the traditional Jews, they didn't like it. Now look closely here. There's something for us to see if we pay attention. What do you think it takes for someone to become a Christian? What would it take for our entire nation to be transformed? What about those people who are so adamant there is no God? Would it be enough for God to do some miracles. I mean, that's what these people imply, isn't it? They say, I don't believe in God because there's not enough evidence. Show me the evidence. 
They're saying, show me a miracle and then I'll believe, right? Wrong. Many people like this, they aren't unbelievers due to lack of evidence. They're unbelievers because they don't want to believe. They don't want to believe. You see, Stephen was doing signs and wonders, miracles. So that should be enough, shouldn't it? There's the evidence that Christ was the Son of God, surely. No, they didn't care about the evidence. Stephen threatened their lifestyle, their beliefs, so they rose up and disputed with him. They argued, they looked for loopholes, reasons not to believe the evidence. They tried to defeat him with reason, with words. And here's another point. Some people imply that they don't believe in God because they haven't heard a strong enough argument. They aren't persuaded. Wrong again. Be persuaded doesn't just require a better argument. It requires an open heart. It says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So that was it then. Surely Stephen won the argument. No. Even when exposed to the full-on wisdom of God, with miracles aplenty, they still didn't believe. So, that's a failed evangelistic outreach then. Right? Stephen needed to regroup, hold some committee meetings, plan a better strategy. No, 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 no. We do the work that God tells us to do and we resist our human urge to look for results, to define success by the things we see. God was at work through Stephen, no doubt about it. The paradox of free will meant that God was not going to overpower these Jews so they were battered into believing. They still needed the freedom to choose. As soon as you give people the freedom to choose, some of them are going to choose the opposite of what you want. Ask any parent if that's true. Would you like fruit or a chocolate bar, son? Choose fruit! Choose fruit! <laughs> if it's a true choice, if it's a free choice, we can't make them choose fruit. And these resistant Jews, they'd set their minds against the gospel of Christ. No miracles, no eloquent words, no knockdown arguments were going to change their minds. Should we be discouraged then? Is it a lost cause to preach the gospel? Well, of course not. Because we don't know the heart inside a person. We can never truly know how they will respond. If we're speaking the words the Holy Spirit gives us, that's enough. We are not responsible for what happens in the hearts and minds of those listening to us. That's the work of God. And you could say exactly the same thing to two different people. And one of them will respond apparently, and one of them will reject you. And we don't know in advance which is going to be. Only God knows. And so we walk in obedience, discharge our duties and entrust the rest to him. So these grumbling Jews, they couldn't beat Stephen in debate. They couldn't deny the miracles. 
What are they going to do then? How can they silence him? Acts 6, 11 to 14. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Yep. They just made stuff up. Now, blasphemy was a really big deal in those days, and that was a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, it meant that people took seriously the name of God. You would not, in ancient Israel, hear anyone casually saying, and please excuse me here, oh my God. It wouldn't happen. The name of God was to be respected, rightly so, not uttered as an exclamation or an oath or a swear word. But on the other hand, it meant that stuff like this could happen. Get a few malicious people to testify that you've been blaspheming and it could go very badly for you. You'd be taken to a public place in the town or just outside it and the entire town would gather together to pelt you with rocks. Literally, until your body finally gave up. Terrifying, right? So it looks pretty bad for Stephen right now. Looking in from the outside, we might say, this is worst case scenario. He's preached the gospel, done miracles, and now they're going to kill him. Sounds like a hopeless case. Don't forget verse 15. Acts 6, 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, we don't know what that means, But there's clearly a visible transformation. Something like this happened to Moses in Old Testament times. He would spend time with God. And after that, people would see that his face was literally shining. See Exodus 34 for that. It happened when he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets. And it happened whenever he spent time with God. Stephen's in a pretty dire situation. And yet, the hand of God touches him. God's power flows into him. And he is radiant. Was Stephen aware of this? Uh, We can't be sure, but I expect so. If you've ever had that experience of being changed while you're in the presence of God, you'll know that you can feel different, feel peace, feel warmth, feel that assurance that everything's okay, that God's in control, that whatever happens, his will will be done. And he is good. And we can trust him. And next week we'll find out what happened to Stephen after this. Suffice it to say, say, Stephen knew that God was with him. And he experienced an incredible peace that gave him the boldness to carry on preaching the gospel. To remain faithful to Christ to the end. I hope and pray that the same will be true of us. That God gives us the power, the endurance, the boldness to be faithful to the end. For Jesus' name and for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Amen. What was the point of this sermon? What are the take-home points? It'll be different for every person. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you and only you know what he's saying. But here are the general things I sensed when I put this sermon together. Five main points. One, be prepared. 
good cub scout. We should be prepared for when God calls on us, prepared in our hearts and prepared practically. Keep your fuel tank half full. Have extra food in the house just in case. If you're walking through town, keep some spare change about you. Or even better, bring a care pack to give to the homeless. Bring your Bible to church. Be prepared. Two, good deeds. We can't earn our salvation. Good deeds don't get us into heaven. But good deeds should be a mark of every Christian's life. What good deeds will God call you to? Ask him. Three, don't belittle your calling. Everything you do as a Christian is sacred. Whether you preach, serve the poor, clean tables, or greet people at the door, whatever. Relish your calling. Commit it to God. Four, you are accepted. Yes, you. Nothing disqualifies you from accepting the gospel or being used by God. Nothing. And perhaps most importantly, five. Leave the results to God. We just need to be faithful to do what he's asking of us. It's so hard, but try not to be guided by whether or not something worked. I spoke to my neighbor about Jesus and he just laughed at me. No, don't worry. You don't know what's going on in his heart. Some people need a lot of time and a lot of chances. Most people do. Leave the results to God. Be at peace. If you'd like to talk about any of these things or pray them through, please do come and talk to me or anyone else. I don't bite. In fact, I'm far more scared of you than you are of me. God bless you all.